Hi, and welcome to the Free Music Ed podcast. My name is Stephen, and what you just heard was clarinetist Ken Poplowski. This is a track from his new album, Maybe September. The song is A Fool Such As I. We have Ken Poplowski with us today, all the way from New York City. How are you doing today, Ken? I'm doing well. I'm just uh, trying to stay out of the uh, sun. We've had an unforgiving summer so far here in New York. No, but it's been it's been nice. I, I've also been traveling amidst all this, so uh, I can't say life has not been interesting as of late. It's it's always there's always something going on. Yeah, well, you may have had an unforgiving summer in New York, but it has been raining like crazy here in Texas. Uh, yeah. Well, maybe we can trade, you know, alternate days or something. That might work out well. I think that would be the fairest. Absolutely. All right, we'll, we'll get going on that. I'll have my people start working on that for you. That sounds good to me. Yeah, have them call me. You grew up, though, in Cleveland, Ohio, I understand from your biography on your website. And your first experiences playing the clarinet were in a, a Polish polka band? Yeah, uh, which probably me and hundreds of other brass and woodwind players would have had that experience because... That area, I guess you, you could say the whole kind of industrial Midwest area, the steel belts, and uh, that was all, there's a lot of Polish people there, a lot of, uh, you know, different ethnic groups that uh, was great fodder for these, you know, wedding bands and playing dances and things like that. And uh, my brother was and is two years older than me and, and a trumpet player, and I played clarinet, and we started the band when I think I was 12 and he was 14. And I always tell people, you know, it's like learning how to swim by being thrown into the water. You better start paddling, you know, and and you do, you learn pretty fast when it's, when it's on the job training like that. So, you know, we were out there playing, playing gigs, you know, I was playing weddings and, and dances and we'd go on the local TV shows. And in addition, in addition to the polka music, We'd learn top 40 songs, we'd learn old standards, and that's how I wound up also playing the saxophone, was just because of necessity, because uh, to broaden the uh, the sound. And the other thing about that music is that the clarinet in the Polish polka music improvises, and it's it's so like New Orleans jazz that it's kind of un- uncanny. It's uh, You've got two trumpets playing in tandem, and the clarinet's improvising around them, and every song's got three or four sections, and you even have drum breaks at the end, just like you would on an uh, old traditional jazz song. Yeah, that sounds exactly like playing Dixieland music. Uh, and I guess they both kind of came from, you know, marches and things. Yeah, there there is that common ground of, you know, those New Orleans bands came... Uh, came out of the concert band tradition and that whole, you know, if you listen to the famous uh, clarinet solo on High Society, the, the uh, New Orleans tune, uh, it, that sounds like a Polish polka. And and the way that you're supposed to play that solo, too, the way you articulate the notes and everything is exactly the way you would do it on on clarinet in, in a polka band. So it's 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 a weird thing, but... Um, you know, it's fun. You you do learn by that, and also by traveling around, listening to other music. That uh, jazz is 
while while jazz is an American music, uh, improvising that tradition goes goes way back to every almost every country. There's some kind of improvised music. Well, and I've always felt that Dixieland jazz had a lot to do with like Claysmere music as well. They had a lot of common ground. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And and all those clarinetists back then would practice classical etude books. And a lot of those exercises, again, it sounds like a lot of kind of chord-based improvising, you know, a lot of arpeggio stuff. And it's common to lots of different kinds of music, but that's a great way to learn how to improvise. You know, it, I kind of did that first and used my ear and then later figured out technically what everything meant and what the chords were. So I kind of learned the chords by playing them on the instrument, by just outlining the notes individually. And then, uh, but for me, that was a good way to learn. And, and in fact, now when I pass on, you know, whatever knowledge I have to, to students, I tell them, you know, never forget the value of just, just trying things and don't just, just rely on, you know, what the book tells you. Like if, you know, some, this method, jazz method books now that will say, you know, if you've got this chord, you have to play these notes or this scale and, and I'll tell them, just, just put that away and use your ear and see what happens. And then, you know, maybe record it and then figure out later, well, what worked in there and why did it work? And why did the, did the other note you played not work? And, and then you're kind of teaching yourself not only how to improvise, but you're teaching yourself theory and you're, and you're learning your own style of playing. I think that you see a lot of people that go to teach improvisation and the first thing they do is start analyzing Charlie Parker and learning chord scales and they seem to completely neglect uh, 50 or 60 years of jazz heritage before that even happens. And so it sounds like you you really think that there's a whole lot of value in all of this other type of music as well. Oh, absolutely. And, and listening to all kinds of music and... Also, it's not just about the note choices. It's about the sounds that you get on the instrument. And that's a whole other thing. And, you know, I always tell people, if you like somebody on an instrument, let's say, like if you like a saxophone player, if you like Ben Webster, you like him because you like his sound, you like his note choices, chances are everybody up to, and almost including Coltrane, none of those people never took a, a jazz lesson, you know, quote-unquote, in their lives. You know, they they learned from, from the people that came before them and then tried to expand that knowledge and, for, and ultimately form their own style. You learn first by imitating, and then hopefully you move on from that. Uh, but he's, even Coltrane, who now, he's kind of the basis for most, for lack of a better word, modern jazz playing, and, and I find that kind of funny because his music is, is uh, 40, 50 years old now. But his stuff, he wouldn't have played the way he played were it not for Dexter Gordon and then going back from there, Lester Young and Johnny Hodges and people like that. Now, you know, you can study and analyze them what, what, let's say, John Coltrane would have played. But I always, again, I tell students, why is that your only choice for improvising? Why don't you check out the whole history, and, th and then decide for yourself how you want to sound. Because the only thing that makes modern jazz modern is the fact that it's somebody playing it right now. 
because it's all kind of subjective and you can have any sound that you want to have and any choose any notes that you want to play with and you're limiting yourself if you're just following what's in let's say this book based on this one person's playing I, I couldn't agree more with that. Uh, as a piece of background, real quick to our listeners, Kim Poplowski here is an absolutely phenomenal clarinet and saxophone player, uh, and he's had a, a huge career, played with an unreasonable list of people, and uh, done over 40 solo CDs and 400 CDs as a sideman, or over 400. Let me let me take a minute, if you don't mind, and can can we play a little bit of one of the other tracks off your new album? Great. Uh, Caroline No is the uh, the track name. Is I want you guys to hear him play some saxophone real quick. without sounding like I'm, you know, doing an imitation of their record or trying to be too hip or something, you know. So, so I was real happy with the way that turned out. And uh, there's a few of those kinds of things on this record. I, I did a song by Nilsson called Without Her, and I did a Beatles song for No One. And that song that we started with, Now and Then There's a Fool Such As I, I always joke about that on the bandstand when I play it, because when I tell the audience that I'm going to play a song uh, that was associated with Elvis, the uh, jazz hipsters in the audience get all excited. And then uh, I love to see the looks of disappointment on their face when they realize I'm referring to Elvis Presley and not Costello. <laughs> <laughs> it's an old Elvis Presley song. and uh, But, you know, so I, I just try to find things that I like, and I'll, even, I'll save you a question if you want to ask me how I think of myself I'm, I think of myself as an interpreter of songs, no more, no less, you know, so, and you can see that on my records. I just find things that I like, try to find my own way to play them, 
And, um, you know, hopefully that's what I've achieved on these records. You you have a really great sound, and to me, what I what I think of when I've been listening to your tracks is that when you play clarinet, I feel like you you bridge the gap of the the freedom of big band players along with both the technical prowess and the harmonic diversity of you know like Eddie Daniels or Buddy DeFranco. It's really neat. It's right there, kind of the best of both worlds, in my opinion. Well. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. Um, incidentally, for the listeners, I've written all of his comments that he says to me. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yes. I, I've got a prepared list. Yeah, I've written all these. The all the uh, the favorable comments. So, uh, anyway. <laughs> so, are, are we supposed to talk about how you look better without a mustache now, or is that the next one? <laughs> no, that's all right. We can forget that one. No, but you know, I do. I really do appreciate it because I. Uh, the clarinet, that's kind of my first love, as it is most people that started on clarinet and then played saxophone. Uh, I, I bet you if you asked Eddie Daniels, he'd tell you that, and Paquito de Rivera would say the same thing. And, but, and it's, it's the more unforgiving and demanding of the two instruments. So, I, you know, I really appreciate any kind of thoughtful comments like that. And, and, uh, you know, my, my hero on the clarinet was a guy named Jimmy Hamilton, who played the Duke Ellington's band for many years, for close to 20 years. And what I really loved about his playing was that he sounded like he could play in an orchestra. He had that, that beautiful classical sound in the clarinet, dark, you know, rich sound, yet he, he was playing the most swinging stuff you would ever hear. So... You know, my goal, and, and I'm not saying I achieved that, but my goal is to try to take that the next step. And, and even whatever I'm playing, I don't sacrifice the sound of the instrument. You know, I still try to keep that kind of beautiful, real clarinet sound as, as my ultimate goal. Yeah, now I, I'm a clarinet player, and I kind of came into it secondary. Like, I started out as a saxophone player, and in a very weird turn of events that makes no sense, I uh, started studying clarinet as well. And I'd actually never studied jazz at all until I started clarinet. But, I mean, I was a kid, I went to a music store, and the only clarinet CD in the whole music store was Benny Goodman. And, you know, as you would expect, I guess. And uh, just all of a sudden, I, that was my gateway into into studying jazz and clarinet and stuff. He does that for everybody, I think. Me too. I, I mean, he would have been the guy that really, I, I would have heard him first and went, wow, you know, I wish, that's, I wish I could play with that kind of excitement and drive and that really opened up that whole, whole world for me. Um, and I still, you know, I still go back and listen to some of his early stuff and those live broadcast from the late 30s and man he played with so much fire back then and and so much fluency well everything you know he was about as complete a clarinetist as you could hope for but yeah that that was the inspiration for most players i think even though people move on and you know get their own things going but uh but that just goes to show you how big of a figure he was that he still cast a shadow over all of us, you know, his name is still mentioned in, in reviews of, of all the rest of us playing, you know, now, and they use him as a 
comparative examples many times, you know. And we're still all getting calls to do concerts playing the music associated with Benny Goodman. And it's amazing, actually, that the one person on that instrument had, had that that much of a uh, great influence on everything afterwards. Well, of course, I, I think we're all very jealous of that, too, that rock star, pop star kind of status behind him, where he was the the right person at the right time to be the biggest name clarinetist and then hang around all those years afterwards. It, it's totally unfair. <laughs> yeah. Well, there should be room for everyone, you would think, but uh, but that's okay. I mean, uh, you know, without him, there wouldn't be everybody else afterwards. It was that, that kind of thing. It's it's hard. It's actually kind of hard now to even imagine, because jazz been around for so long. But it's it's hard to imagine that sometimes certain things. It all started with one person, you know, and like he really was a quantum leap forward in the jazz clarinet from you know what was going on before, uh, as as was Louis Armstrong on the trumpet. But it's hard to imagine that happening again. And maybe it it won't. I I would like to hope that there'll there'll be a jazz renaissance in the popular collective pretty soon. I you see it pop up. We've been doing so much, you know, looking back at the past and things. And people my age, you know, I'm in my mid twenties. Most of them don't know anything about it. It's completely new and fresh to them. And I was just thinking about like uh, Woody Allen's movie a few years, Forget Paris, and everyone talking about Sidney Bechet all of a sudden, and uh, just some really exciting things. Maybe when we get into the 2030s, we'll do it all again. Yeah, well, one thing that I've noticed uh, is that people have been talking about the death of, of jazz music for almost as long as the music's been here. You, you can go back and read old downbeats and other jazz magazines from like the 60s and and they're lamenting, you know, our big band's ever going to come back? You know, where's this music headed? So, in a way, that's refreshing, because if they were complaining for that long, the music's probably going to stay very healthy. It may be smaller audiences, but that's all right. You know, it'll, it, there's, there'll always be an audience for it. And you're in your age group, I find that people just need to hear it. That's the thing. You have to get... You have to try to find a way to get people's attention now because there's so much out there uh, and so many outlets and so so many entertainment channels and, and purveyors of entertainment that are vying for people's attention that you just have to get people to say, uh, it's, let's let's turn off the, the uh, iPod shuffle. Let's, let's, let's just listen to one thing and check it out or go to a live concert and hear what that music's really about. And then... Uh, every time across the board, if I've played for a younger audience that's never heard the music before, they always get really excited about it because there's nothing else like jazz music, you know, um, where people are pretty much, I mean, creating as they go, you know, and every performance is going to be completely different from the one before. It's not a difficult music to listen to, as some people mistakenly think, you just have to pay a little bit of attention. And, you know, if you can learn some of the songs, like the standards that are the basis for a lot of the jazz songs, that'll help too. And there's a lot of easy ways to get into that music. Or even, you know, like I didn't do this on purpose to, to try to 
different uh, audience. But he, if people know those songs that I recorded, like the Beach Boys thing or something like that, like listen to that and then listen to our record and see how we change things around, and then that's jazz. I don't mind having to take the audience by the hand a little bit and, and help them out because once once they come into our world, they they always love it. I think there's so much substance to jazz. I mean, there's really something there. There's great energy and great music, and I think you're right. People just have to discover it. And I, maybe it's maybe it's a bad thing that now we have so much opportunity and so much content available to us that we can definitely get ourselves into a rut and never experience these other types of things we haven't experienced before. Yeah, I, well, I think it's easy to do, and, and I do it too. I mean, I, I found that there's, with with a lot of exceptions, though, but there's a, a whole group of people out there that don't even know the concept of listening to an album, of just sitting and listening to, let's say, a prepared 45 to 60 minutes of music. It, it's just a complete foreign experience, and I find that that's just mind-blowing. But for a lot of people now, music is only... A function as background while they're doing something else, and even if they put jazz on their their whatever their source of music is, Pandora or iPod or whatever, it's all on shuffle and it just floats by, and they don't really particularly pay attention to, to what everything is. And all I'm saying is, don't shortchange yourselves. You know, to slow down a bit and check out each thing and see if see if it's worth exploring. Because uh, you might be missing out on a whole world out there, and it's such a it's such a different thing to just sit and listen to music. Um, it's it's a very different experience, and it opens up a lot of other parts of your mind, and it's very relaxing experience too. And it's just you know I think everybody needs to just remind themselves sometimes to just let me step aside from the madness, you know, that is this constant glut of 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 info coming in over the over the clouds, you know, and let me just take one thing and do that for a while. Let's take a moment now and get very clarinet nerdy. Could we have the equipment discussion? Like, uh, what what do you play on? Mouthpiece, reeds, horn, those type of things. Yeah. Okay. Well, the clarinet, I've pretty much always used the buffet R13, which is the standard buffet. I switched briefly to a Yamaha, but I, I, then I went back to the buffet. And for the mouthpiece, I've played almost my entire life, I've played the Portnoy. And it's a BPO2 with these Van Doren German cut number four reeds. Here's a piece of bad marketing that I can't believe they haven't changed yet. They, they call these reeds the German cut white masters. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, I mean, some, some, somebody should tell them they need to change that. Yeah, that's uh, that's not okay. <laughs> no, no, but uh, so I use these those reeds, which are a little different. They're kind of narrow, and they don't fit every every mouthpiece. But you know, equipment. I'm a person who tries not to change a lot. I think that's. Such a, you can you can get into such a bad uh, headspace, you know, with with change wanting to change equipment and trying to find the sound or find the answer 
in the external. You know, if you're, if you're trying to get an instrument to sound the way you want, first you have to decide what you want to sound like. And half the battle about playing the clarinet or the saxophone is learning how to breathe properly and, and push the air through the horn and project right. And, and then, you know, if you think of it as you providing the sound and the instrument is just the amplifier, that saves a lot of time, a lot of money, and a lot of anguish because, you know, if you could spend as much time away from the horn thinking about the sound, even practicing lines, stuff like like that, maybe we can, we can talk about that a little bit too, but I've used this Portnoy mouthpiece on the clarinet. Uh, it's probably the second mouthpiece I ever played. And then I met him, Bernard Portnoy. He, he showed up at a concert I played on the West Coast somewhere and and he said, I see you're using my mouthpiece. And he didn't measure it. He didn't look at it. And he said, I'll send you one that I think you'll like even better. And he did, and I did. I loved it. So I, I played <laughs> that one, and, and I've got a couple backups. Um, and on tenor, I've I got this old Berg Larson hard rubber duckbill mouthpiece that I've had, again, for years and years and years. And I used Van Dorn number four reads on that. And I don't, I don't like to mess around and change, you know. I, I think sometimes, like, I'll, I'll try something, and we all do this. You, you try something and you, you change because you're fooled into thinking it's playing better, but it only is playing differently. Because then, how many times have you done this? You try something for a few months, and then you go back to what you had before, and, and that feels like you're back home again. You know, it's like... Why did I change it? I should have should have done this in the first place. So um, again, I'm not saying you should never change equipment, but that gets to be such a it, it's like a disease for musicians. You know, uh, mouthpieces reads all the time. Just again, you know, slow down a little bit. Find something in the middle that you just let the reed vibrate. You know, stay out of your way and and you provide the sound. If you're breathing right, that's half the battle. And and uh, you you could potentially play on almost anything. That then, if you're thinking along those terms, I I think you're right. I think a lot of people get very hung up on that equipment question. And uh, one of the things that I'll often tell my students is that if you play the clarinet, you know, like here's Kim Poplowski, you can pick up almost any other clarinet and set up, and you'll still sound more like Kim Popowski than anybody else will. Yeah, because everybody's, you know, everybody's mouth and teeth are different too. So if you wanted to sound like me, you might have to play a completely different setup than what I have. And that's how crazy it is, you know. Uh, but it's all, I can't tell you enough how about the breathing, though, and projecting the air. I took a couple of years of voice lessons when I was in, uh, when I went to college, and that helped me a lot. Just learning, like, how to relax the throat, open the throat, you know, concentrate the air, push the air through, let everything resonate. You have, like, a cavity in, in, in your throat there, and that's where the center of the sound really comes from, you know? I use an analogy. If I asked you to blow on a dot on a piece of paper, you wouldn't keep your mouth wide open and go... You would, you know, purse your lips and go, and, and really push that air to aim at that dot. Well, it's the same thing when you're when you're playing. You have to you have to kind of 
intellectualize that a bit and, and just imagine that you're aiming for that dot uh, on the other side of the room and just pushing that air through like that. And uh, that's half the battle. On clarinet, it solves a lot of problems. You don't have to, you know, the least amount of adjustments you can make, the better for you. You know, if you're going into the upper register, if anything, if you're breathing right, you should be able to relax a bit and not feel like you have to clinch down more. If you are, then you're probably not pushing the air through properly. I usually tell my students when it comes to clarinet that once you have a good tone just on an open note, on a G, and and you start playing that you don't really make any embouchure adjustments. They're all throat adjustments, if anything, as you get into a higher register, but never never biting, never doing any adjusting like that. Yeah. Is, is that your philosophy? Oh, it is. You know, and again, you know, getting back to the vocal lesson thing, like if you look at the way the, any great singer, if you watch them on, on stage, there's very little extraneous activity. You know, if they go for a high note, they're not tightening everything up. They're, they're actually sometimes actually relaxing a bit more. Sinatra used to do that. You know, when you go into the upper register, he looked very relaxed because he was just, you know, he had that open throat. He just pushed the air right through. So it's the same philosophy on saxophone and clarinet. You, wanna, you want that reed to vibrate, really. That's what it's about. So to do that, you want to stay out of its way, have your amateur kind, for the most part, set. I mean, there's things that you'll do for certain effects and things, and, and you can, there's always going to be a little bit of movement there that's unavoidable. But the, the goal is to is to try to keep it pretty pretty set and just let let your airflow take care of care of all the work for you. So one of the things that I see a lot with students who double playing clarinet and saxophone is there's people that suggest that those instruments are even remotely alike, and I think they're in many ways the complete opposite. Can you give some ideas about the differences between playing clarinet and saxophone? Yeah, well, I'm glad you said that, because I kind of stress that myself. I, I think the reason for doubles is really, uh, if you go back in time, it's probably was just an economic thing, because... In a big band, for example, they, you know, they wanted to hear the certain textures and they didn't want to spend the money to have a separate clarinetist and a separate flute player, you know, and, and even a double reed player sometimes. The key to me to playing clarinet, tenor, and a little bit of alto is to treat them like separate instruments and not to try to find like little tricks or things to, to get you from one to the other. And I practice I spend most of the time on the clarinet worried about the sound, the technique, and I find that a lot of the technical stuff transfers over to the saxophone, not necessarily the other way. What I remind myself on on every instrument I play is the sound and how it's different. And I'm not trying to sound like a doubler. I'm not trying to sound the same on each instrument. When I play the clarinet, I want that clarinet sound. On the saxophone... I tend to try to get a little breathier, you know, sound. Um... I, I Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, it reminds me a lot of Zoot Sims. Well, I loved Zoot. You know, he was one of my guys, and, and Ben Webster, too. And so that's more of my approach, which would not sound good if I had that on the clarinet. Or it might sound good, but it would be certainly different from what I sound like on clarinet now. So I think it's kind of obvious that I sound 
I approached the saxophone one way and the clarinet one way. And I used to play a bit, a little bit of flute, and I, I gave that up because I was never really happy with my sound. But even when I was doing that, I was thinking of it as, how do I want this flute, this flute to sound? Not like, how can I get over by kind of cheating and finding some common thing and just making this work? For me, it's a you got to find find your way into each each instrument, you know, and whatever it takes to keep up on them is what you need to do. There's no right or wrong, you know. Some people practice all the time, some people don't, and but whatever you need to do to, to maintain, you know, that thing. And for me, a shortcut is always I practice a lot of the clarinet etude books. If I can go through those, if I'm feeling good on that instrument, as I say, I'm getting the fingers moving that's going to transfer over to the saxophone. And then what I concentrate on when I pick up the saxophone is just reminding myself of how I want that instrument to sound and am I breathing right for that horn. And so I'll, I'll play mostly, I'll play a ballad or I'll play some long tones or I'll go up in fourths or fifths and try to keep a uniform sound too from bottom to top. Just because I'm in the upper register, I don't want it to get edgy or sounding, and I still try to keep that dark, kind of breathy sound even in the upper register. That's kind of my approach. Oh, and the other thing is, the reason why the clarinet technical stuff works well on the saxophone is because on both instruments, So I always think if you want to be able to play fast and efficiently, you want the least amount of extraneous movement. Oh, yeah. So, I'm trying to relax over the keys on both horns and just kind of pivot using my wrists. You know, there's very little extra movement when I'm playing. You know, I'm, I'm not moving my elbows. I'm just relaxing over over the horn kind of. There's some footage of Charlie Parker playing, and he, he looks like his fingers are hardly moving at all, playing so classically correct, you know, on, on the thing. And that partially accounts for the, the lightning speed uh, with which he could play. I had a professor uh, in college, and he called that the rule of maximum slothness, that you want to do your playing in the way that requires the, the least amount of extra movement in your hands. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the same thing we were talking about with the, the embouchure. It's the same theory, really. You want to stay out of the way of, of, of the reed. You know, and in a way, you want to stay out of the way of, of the rest of the horn too, and just let let the keys move the way they're supposed to, and and let that reed vibrate. So, so just just get out of its its way and let it do its work. Let me ask you a question about saxophone embouchure and and saxophone ear just a little bit. I know that's super technical, but I I know my thought process is when I play clarinet, I try to use cold and fast air. And whenever I play the saxophone, it's more uh, more like warm air, like you're fogging up a window or a mirror. Uh, the same thing when I play clarinet embouchure, uh, I'm not biting, but I'm also not very towards the bottom of the pitch. When I play saxophone, I scoot down as close to the bottom of the pitch with my embouchure as possible. Do you do something similar to that or something completely different? Um, I guess kind of similar. I, I can tell you, when I play the clarinet, the embouchure I think of as generally pulling away from the mouthpiece. You know, they always, you know, legit teachers used to call it the mask around that. Uh, but so I'm pulling back away from the mouthpiece. 
and saxophone, I find myself kind of coming in around the mouthpiece and kind of cushioning it, a, cushioning it a little bit. You know, I haven't used those terms that you use with the uh, warm air versus cold air, but I definitely breathe in a different way on the saxophone than on the clarinet because I'm I'm going for that subtony, breathy sound on the tenor, which does require a different way of producing the airflow. I think sometimes if you're thinking about it, you're going to trick yourself into doing it with that. Whatever it, you know, again, whatever it takes to get that sound, whatever you, however you need to think of it. But yeah, I do. I definitely would be breathing differently on the two horns and and the saxophone. Again, I'm feeling more like I'm. I'm still. I'm very relaxed, and I'm around the mouthpiece, but still relaxed enough that the reeds vibrating. You know, my jaw's a little bit down, and the, the clarinet. I'm more. It's more of a tighter embouchure and more kind of uh, spread back and away from the mouthpiece. Yeah. Okay. On saxophone, are you a softer reed guy? Not really. No. I still. I play number fours on both. Both instruments. Oh, um, you know it, it's it's kind of the mouthpiece recombination, like on tenor, that old Berg, and it's pretty open. I don't know what the opening is because when I bought it, it had been opened up by somebody. So, uh, but it's a fairly open mouthpiece with this number four regular Pandoran reed, but it never feels too hard. And if anything, sometimes the reeds play a little soft on that mouthpiece. But the clarinet, um, those those German cut uh, number fours can play a little on the harder side. So ironically, on the saxophone, I'm looking for the the harder number fours, and the clarinet the slightly softer number fours. Well, in in the end, there the whole point is that you sound the way you wanted to. I mean, you you want to sound good. So ultimately, yeah. you can try these things, but you really. You just want to sound good when at the end of the day. That's that is that's it. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes too, along those lines, it's always good to know what people are playing on, because if you heard that ten people are playing this one kind of mouthpiece and they and they lean towards a certain kind of a sound, the odds are, if you want that kind of a sound, you might tr- you probably should try that mouthpiece, but. As I say, just a little note of caution, you know, because I, I did this too. You know, when I was growing up, I read the magazines and would read, you know, so and so plays this and plays this, and then you'd want to go and get that equipment. But that could sometimes it's just you're entering, you know, Alice in Wonderland down the rabbit hole. Uh, oh yeah, just trying to yeah, it can it can drive you absolutely insane. You know, trying to trying to find the sound that maybe you needed completely different equipment yourself with your own mouth formation and teeth and all that to, to achieve. Yeah, no, that's great. Now, I, I, gotta, I got some crazy questions for you now. A, a lot of people get asked, since you know you have all the jazz standards and there's lots of tunes that you're called on to play, uh, a lot of people get asked their favorite. I'd like to know, is there a jazz standard that you hate and whenever they call it up, you, you weep inside? Oh, that's good. I like that. Well, there's a few that have been... Um, let me think if there's one I really hate. Uh, 
Okay, I would say I would weep inside if if I'm on the bandstand and somebody calls. It's it's there's a whole subcategory which we would call the real book songs. Because mm-hmm. um, should I should we explain that for anybody that doesn't know? Uh, well, the the real books are collections of jazz standards. Uh, originally, you had to buy them out of the trunk of a back of a car. They were super illegal, and now Hal Leonard has four volumes that you can buy. Uh, and it's not illegal to purchase them, right? Yeah, and uh, uh, but he still has the wrong changes in those books too for most of the songs. Incidentally, that's just as a side note, if people want to learn songs that are in the real books, even the published versions, go out and buy the sheet music afterwards and learn learn the original changes, and then make your own decisions what you want to do as far as the melody and the the chords instead of just getting that one version anyway but so the subcategory of songs that i hate is tends to be these jam session real book songs that everybody plays over and over there will never be another you on green dolphin street uh all blues um freddie freeloader uh, <laughs> yeah you know freddie freeloader siora you know the list goes on in the mellow zone take the a train most of those songs They've been played hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. And, you know, when a band starts up with, with one of those tunes, I'm, I just think to myself, are we really going to find new, you know, new, uh, mine new gold tonight? And this, this song was played over and over and over. Sometimes you actually do. Sometimes I'll, I'll play a song that went into the hate piles and I've, I left alone for 10 years and then I, I dig it back out again and I, it actually sounds fresh and fun, but it's like, man, you know, I, I just think like all the students out there, like, can you guys not learn some other songs, you know? <laughs> and now, you know, now they've got their uh, real book apps. So now you play with local rhythm sections and they know all the songs from the real book because they, they pull out, their iPads on the bandstand uh, and and pull those songs up, which are also transposing at the touch of a button, transposable. So they they're not learning anything, you know. Uh, there is a value to just to having to be forced to memorize songs and get the, the changes in your head and uh, building up a repertoire like that. You know, it's actually it's not that daunting of a task to build up your repertoire. I mean, look, if you, let's say you start with the real book songs, which, which isn't a bad place to start with because you're, you're learning the foundations of a lot of jazz standards, all those, I got rhythm tunes, some blues heads, some of those AABA American song things, forms. But go from there. Like, why couldn't you practice once a week you add a song to your repertoire uh, or once every two weeks even? If it was once every two weeks, you know, uh, so then in a year you've got, what do you have, 24 songs you've, you've added to your, to your repertoire. Two years, 48 songs. And you, of course, can do better than that. But, and you just keep reinforcing. You learn the song, you play it on the bandstand, then you add another one. Then you refresh the first one just by playing it once through. And then, you know, before you know it, you've got lots of different songs to add. You know, or, or if you like one tune... That's in the real book. Look at the composer. Let's say it's, you learn the composer's Harold Arlen. 
go out and get the Harold Island song book and learn some of his other things, you know? Because, um, you know, when I'm on the bandstand, I do a lot of dates with local rhythm sections, too. I'll just bring leeches. Most everybody can read pretty well these days, you know? So I'll bring things just so we're not playing the same old songs over and over. But now you've got me you've got me on a whole thing here of pet peeves. That's right. We've got so, we've got a great rant. This is this is perfect. Yeah, no, I've got another one. Okay. Which uh as a horn player, this bothers me as my my fellow horn players do this. They're the worst ones at this. In in a jam session. Why? Dear Lord in heaven, why? Does if you've got five horn players up on the bandstand they all have to solo first in a great length. Then the piano player takes a solo. Then the bass. Then finally the poor drummer who's been flailing away <laughs> for the last 30 minutes on this, this temple version of Cherokee. Finally, you give it over to him. And while he's soloing, the horn players start talking to each other because their moment's done, you know. Uh, I mean, what, why couldn't you... Put yourself in the audience's seat. You know, uh, how boring is that for every single song of the same order, the same order of soloists? Why couldn't you give the bass player a solo first? Uh, you're still going to get your chance to play. If there, if there are five horn players up there, why can't two guys play a collective solo, you know, and then give the piano player something or have the drums drop out? You know, there's so much you can do as far as variety within even the standard format of rhythm section plus horns and then the trading with the drummer at the end always every single song it's like uh you know come on you, you know do, that's I, I if i find that boring the audience is, is must be like you know ready ready to go into a coma <laughs> um so i always try to break that rule if i'm involved and if i'm on, on the bandstand there and, and also people need to it's, it's a lot of players you need some economy in your solos because, you know, I like to listen to John Coltrane, but he actually had, he had 20 minutes worth of, of soloing in him. Uh, I don't usually, and most people don't. So play, play as long as it feels right and don't feel like you have to take exactly the same number as the person before or one more than the person before, you know? Um, it's as effective to play one great chorus as it would have been to play 30. Yeah, no, those that's this great all, this advice. This will all change when I become emperor, incidentally. Okay, we'll we'll look for the new jam session rules. I, yeah, I, I, have, I have a lot of rules, yeah. I, I suppose it's a comfort level thing, is that a bunch of these jam sessions, maybe nobody's really in charge, and you know everybody's like, well, who's going to solo now? And it just falls into that rut. Yeah. Somebody always, I mean, somebody, well, that's the thing too, though. Somebody needs to like just step up and say, here's what's, here's what we'll do, you know? Yeah. Those different types of textures and ideas reminds me of something I was going to ask you about. As I was listening to the clips that we've been including in this podcast, I noticed that on the two clarinet songs that you sent me, you do just bass, drums, and clarinet. It kind of reminded me of like, the Sonny Rollins Way Out West album, which was just bass drums and saxophone. Oh, yeah, with, with Shelly Matt and Ray Brown. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. I, I never 
thought about those recordings when I when I did these, but maybe they're in they're in there somewhere. Obviously, I love those records they did, incidentally. But they, there's a classic example of how to treat. He, he played Sonny Rollins played so many songs that if any anybody else would have played the songs, they would have been laughed at. You know, yeah, playing, wagon uh, wheels. I'm an old cowhand. Wagon wheels. You know, he plays them so great and makes such clever arrangements out of them and concepts. Uh, very simple too. Like they're not complicated arrangements, but just just enough things to for every song's different you know, draws you in. There, see, there's a perfect example of the variety that you can do on that classic record of his. I, I think one of the great things about that album, too, is the cover of it. He's out, like, in the desert in full cowboy attire holding yeah. his tenor saxophone. That's right, yeah. I love that. And he always picked weird songs, like he did Toot Toot Tootsie on a, on a record, and, you know, but... Who cares? You know, if, if he, he finds his way into those songs and makes them his, you know. But that's those things that I did on, on this record with um, just clarinet and bass or, or clarinet, bass, and drums. It's probably because I do have, you know, a low boredom threshold for myself and for others, but, but for myself more than anything. And I just want, you know, when I, when I plan a record, too, I want every... Every song has a little different thing about it, and when you listen to the whole thing, it should have a little bit of a flow. And even picking the instruments, uh, I'll hear a song for a certain instrument, or once in a while I'll play a, something that might be thought of as a, as a saxophone song, and I'll, I'll play it on clarinet just to see if I can find a different way or into that that thing. I'm always trying to stay aware of that too, you know, and not uh, fall into the trap of of every song is like the same order of soloist, the drummer, you know, everybody's on this, doing the same textures on every song. It just gets boring. Yeah, I, I can agree. That makes a lot of sense. And we do get these like standard ensembles and people seem to treat it like the Bible, like this is what you have to do, but you don't. No, not at all. And as you said, I mean, you can go back, it's not an, it's not a new concept either. You know, you go back to Sonny Rollins, you go back to these Jelly Roll Martin records, and and same thing. I mean, he's got musicians dropping out halfway through a record, and all of a sudden it's just one something completely different comes in, big surprise, you know. Um, or like the Benny Goodman so. Sextet, where now we're pairing with vibes and clarinet. Whose idea was that? Yeah, I know exactly. Well, there, there you go again. I mean, is where did that come from? You know, uh, that's that's one of those things. Again, we take that for granted now, but for all we know, and I think this is true, it's, it was his. That was his concept to put those that sound out there. There's been many people since that have carried clarinet and vibes, but uh, he was probably the first one to do that. Yeah. Well, and then having it with electric guitar too, which was just a new thing altogether. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and, and I mean, he was, Benny was a pioneer in many ways without, without even thinking about consciously trying to be one, but, you know, he used to, I worked with him a little bit at the end there and he, 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 his position on the whole racial thing, cause they said, they used to tell, tell him, you know, well, Benny, you were a racial pioneer. You, you had, 
black musicians in your band before anybody else. And, um, and his, his reply would be, and I thought this was so hip, he'd say, well, I, I wasn't, I just wasn't thinking about that at all. I just wanted to hire the best people for the job, period. I mean, that's the best way to think about, about the whole, the whole race thing, you know? Well, and that, I mean, that's the definition of not being racist as well. I mean, just, yes. yeah, uh, yeah, this doesn't even come into my consideration. Ah, uh, which is, uh, there's so many, there's so many stories about Benny Goodman, again, because of that whole pop star status. And uh, the things that I've heard about him have been like that. Like he was just, he was really focused. He wanted to do the absolute yeah. best job he can. And uh, a lot of the stories, you know, you, it seems if you're famous, there's going to be stories about how mean you were somewhere or another. Um, That's right. But I, almost everything I've heard about that, it sounds like he was just being a professional. I mean, he 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 did some irrational things, but um, I've talked to other people that worked with him too, and I think he—that's it. He was like an absent-minded professor. He he thought about music pretty much all the time. Like he he didn't always know the the most diplomatic way to do things. Like he could he did this with with the band I was in seconds before the downbeat of a of a lot of a TV show that we did. He took the lead trumpet book away from the, the lead trumpet player and gave it to the third trumpet player. And with with no explanation. But I don't think he was trying to be mean or mess with, with the guy. I think he just really wanted to hear what the other person sounded like playing lead. Any other band leader would have, you know, like if it was me, I would have taken the guy aside and said, excuse me, I just want to, make a slight change and, and hear what it sounds like with a slightly different texture with somebody else playing, but not, not him, you know? All right. So you did uh, something kind of interesting, or at least I read a, an article, a write-up about it, but I don't really know how it went. And that was you were looking around for people that wanted to hire you to do concerts at their home, like yeah. to, to get out and away any type of music you'd jam with anybody. How, how did that go? And are you mm -hmm. still doing that? Or what was the idea I'm there? I'm still doing it. Still trying to do those. Um, yeah, the idea there is that, well, the, you know, I've noticed that there's more, there seems to be a growing uh, number of people that are just doing those anyway. There's a bunch of, of people in California doing these things at their homes and some on the East Coast. You know, and and I I've been hearing about other places, and and I've done it some myself, where we'll just come in with a as a duo or with a quartet or something. So I wanted the idea is to take it a step further, and because I do like to listen to all kinds of music. Part of the thing when I do those events like that, they're a little more informal because first of all, we're sitting in somebody's house, and there's you know, it's a small group of people. So my my thing is, let's not treat this like it's another concert. We'll, we'll give them a little bit of a different experience. And so there's a lot of talking. There's a lot of back and forth with the audience. So I had one a couple months ago where they just started asking questions about all kinds of stuff. Songs, or they wanted me to hear stories about people I've worked with. And it was fun. And I did one in England where... They just looked like they'd be into this, and they were. I took them through the whole process of improvisation because the guy who put on the house party 
told me that most of the guests weren't really jazz fans. They were just friends of his that were going to come to this thing. So we showed them what's involved in playing a song and improvising on it, and they loved it. So the, the idea of this whole house party thing is that it's kind of a fluid concept and up to and including me playing with people that you might think I wouldn't play with, like you put, put me with a rock band or, or a blues band or, or an Indian musician or something. And the idea is right in front of the audience. We find common ground and we show we kind of bring the audience in and show them what goes on in this when the musicians get together and how we can find some way of, you know, bridging whatever the perceived gaps are and, and making music, you know, in a relatively short period of time. So um, that that's the idea behind that. Oh, that's wonderful. That's really a neat idea. What what do people do to contact you about this? Like, how, how does this work? Yeah, they can just find me through my website and contact me that way. Um, and we take it from there. And sometimes I could, you know, the house party thing, it's, there's always a budget issue, but if I'm if I'm traveling somewhere, we can work it out. So I'm kind of in the general neighborhood too. If I'm traveling in that state, we can come come up with doing a, a little, uh, for lack of a better word, a drive by. <laughs> we'll do, we'll do uh, detour ahead. We'll, we'll, detour ahead. That's a better that's better than drive by. That might not sound so good, depending where you live, but. Uh, yeah, we'll do a uh, little detour and do do one of those, you know, off of the main gig. So, uh, you know, they can go on my website, look at my calendar, and, and try to contact me about that for one of those. Yeah, that's phenomenal. Really very personable. I like that. That's kind of seems to be the, the new wave of music, too, that, okay, weird things are going on with the music recording industry and things. You know, how do we make music relevant to people at a time where everybody's stealing it off the Internet? Yeah, that's right. And live music is, will always be there, you know, and that experience. You can't duplicate that. You can't You can't even duplicate it if you're recording it and showing it live. But if you're on the other side of the world watching it on a screen, I can't explain why, but it's not the same experience as being in the room. You know, it's the energy. Never is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, a lot of this kind of music, or or any any kind of actual folk music, the real folk music stuff that was, you know, the ethnic musics, jazz, the dance music. It was all done by people hitting the road and and playing in every town, you know, and getting out there. And this kind of, I think we're seeing the beginnings of this movement to do that again, you know, because um, let's just take the jazz scene, you know, the most cities don't have jazz clubs anymore, but that doesn't mean that there's not an audience out there. So uh, I don't care where we play. We'll go into somebody's home if they can find 40, 50 other friends that, that like the music, you know, we'll make it work. Why not? But there, I, as I say, I think the audiences are still still around, but the venues, some of the venues are, are disappearing. And also, it's fun to play in smaller rooms sometimes, 
you can play in plenty of concert halls, but it's a different experience when you're right there with the audience. They had nowhere to hide. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. Yeah. And it's a little looser, you know, more informal, and I, I like that sometimes, you know. That's just such a neat experience. Let me ask you a bit of a two-part question now. And this is, I guess, going to start bringing this to a close a bit. You talked a little bit about, you know, maybe talking about playing lines or something like that. Do you have both, you know, some practice ideas that we haven't discussed and just general advice to people who, you know, want to be professional musicians or professional jazz musicians or just want to make it a part of their life? I'll try to make keep this brief, but... I can't stress enough the value of practicing classical etudes because a lot of the information in there is stuff that you'll use in your jazz playing anyway. Um, there's some really good books like the, the Rose Studies on clarinet, the John John Studies. Or they go through all the keys. They're melodic. Um, they... they uh, there's some great harmonic ideas in there. You know, you, sometimes you'll find yourself playing all these uh, arpeggio-based uh, exercises, and it's all you're without even consciously doing it. You're learning chords. You know, you're learning uh, certain kinds of uh, playing over certain sets of changes, even. Um, so, a lot that's all going to go into the great big computer of your brain. You know, and and uh, can be applied in any number of ways. And as I said, a lot of times without you even consciously knowing what's going on. And, and you know, then the timing exercise and all that stuff. So the classical stuff, whether you want to be a classical musician or not, it, it, it all helps your jazz playing. Um, and uh, one other thing that I have people do is write out solos away from the instruments. So uh, if I ask you to play, to write out two choruses over rhythm changes, you get a piece of manuscript paper, you write uh, the chords, you know, four, four bars on a, on a uh, stave, uh, and then uh, write the chords over there, take the horn away, and, and write out two, two choruses, then play it and see if it's what you thought it would have sounded like. Uh, if it's not, why not? You know, what, what, what was different? What did you think you were, you were going for? Then you correct that solo. You can look at the solo and see if it's got a nice arc to it. You can look at the solo and see, am I always playing in four-bar chunks? You know, if I am, let me start a phrase that starts on bar four and goes into the next set of phrases. Am I always um, stopping before the bridge and then treating the bridge as a separate thing? Again, play, then write a solo where you play through that. Am I just using uh, one octave of my instrument? Well, then write a solo that starts in another register. You know, that, that's the whole thing. You're, you're eventually being your own teacher, which is actually, ironically, when I'm teaching students, that's my goal is to get them to not need us anymore and to go out there and, and always be their own teacher and always learn. Uh, the saxophone player James Moody used to tell me um, the best practicing he ever did is away from his instrument, just visualizing lines and singing through things on a plane or whatever. 
Um, so this is a good way of getting them into that and, and using the recording device as a teaching tool, too. And um, to develop your own strong sense of time, you know, first maybe practice with a metronome, then take the metronome away. Is the time as strong? Can you hear, feel the beat all the time? If not, again, get that metronome back out. And, and you'll you'll find yourself doing this on your own. Um, and general advice is, I mean, for somebody that wants to be a professional musician, um, half the battle is the dedication and 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 feeling like it's as much um, a part of your life as it is a, as a profession. So you, if you want it bad enough, I really believe that you will make you make it happen. You'll find a way to make it happen, but you really have to want it bad enough. You can't go in um, kind of like, well, let me see if this is going to work out, you know. Then it's not. You know, you, you can't. I see a lot of people that, you know, New York's a really unforgiving town, and a lot of people come here and they'll, they're like, well, I'll try it for three months, and if it doesn't work out, well, that's already not the right attitude. You have to, like, I'm moving to New York. I'm going to make this happen. But there's no guarantees, but if you, as I say, if you've got something to say and you, you, you want something bad enough, you'll find a way to do it. You know, even, you know, I can see people in small towns, uh, if they want to play bad enough, they'll they'll make an opportunity for themselves now and they'll go to the local coffee shop and offer to play and, uh, you know, they'll find, they'll find some way to, to do it. Um, so that's half the battle is you, you got to think about it. If it's really what you want to do. then then you should be doing it. Uh, and if you're not sure, then maybe you should just wait. And for people where music is a hobby, um, it's a wonderful hobby, and it's something. The same philosophy as before with uh, is that you should never stop trying to learn because um, that's it's fun. You know, it's it's fun to to try to improve your craft all the time, and it, even if you start late in life, you know, and you just start playing an instrument, there's no reason why you can't uh, keep moving forward and 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 uh, and sound sound pretty good after a while you know thank you so much for taking time to visit with us today it was a really really a good visit yeah i loved it really nice interesting uh conversation for me too so uh thanks i'm glad you called me all right well you guys at home keep on practicing <laughs> 